98K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. A student is confirmed to be infected with COVID ahead of the planned resumption of in-person classes. The 10-year-old is one of two new COVID cases that are linked to an outbreak centred on a Toon Moon restaurant. And Ocean Park prepares to reopen on Friday, but bars aren't happy with the restrictions imposed. A school in Toon Moon has asked all staff to get tested for COVID after a student who attended special classes there last week was confirmed to be infected. Around 30 students who may have been exposed will be asked to either self-quarantine or get tested as well. As Priscilla Ng reports, the school says it's taking these measures even though the government decided that they're not necessary. Sham Yu Kuang, principal of the FDBWA Chao Chin Yao School, said he had proposed suspending all classes for the next fortnight as a precaution after he was informed that a primary six student was confirmed to be infected. Schools across Hong Kong are to resume full in-person classes starting next week. But he said the Education Bureau decided that there is no need for such a suspension. He also said the Center for Health Protection determined that no staff or students are close contacts with the girl and therefore don't need to be tested. Despite this, he's asked all staff to get tested. Students who were in school at the same time as the girl can either get tested or self-quarantine for two weeks. The president of the medical association, Choi Kin, wonders why the government thought this wasn't necessary. The test nowadays is easily done, so and the result is rapidly available. So if the number of personnel involved is not too big, I think there's good reason to do it. I'm not sure why they have not insisted, but there must be an underlying reason for, for their action. So I, I would question them on this issue. The 10-year-old girl is one of five new local cases confirmed today. She and a 48-year-old woman are believed to have been infected by family members who'd gone to a Tunmun restaurant now at the center of a cluster of COVID cases. Health authorities also confirmed four imported cases. Ocean Park is already fully booked up for the weekend, a day after the government announced that local theme parks can reopen from Friday. But as Timmy Sung reports, its rival Disneyland still hasn't announced when it'll be reopening. Local theme parks have been closed for the past two months since the third wave of the COVID outbreak hit, and many can't wait for them to reopen. Customers immediately started booking tickets for Ocean Park following the government announcement and is already booked full for Friday's reopening, the weekend and the upcoming National Day holiday. It will be operating at half capacity as a safeguard against COVID and people who want to go on rides will have to first register online. The theme park has already received a $5.4 billion bailout from the government earlier this year, but has warned about its long-term future because of the devastating impact of COVID. But Hong Kong Disney has yet to give its fans any clue as to when it will reopen to visitors. A spokesman only said their opening plan will follow guidelines from health authorities and they will continue to monitor COVID-19 developments. An alliance of bar operators says the government is doing more harm than good by letting them reopen on a limited basis. From Friday, bars will be allowed to operate until midnight and with two customers at each table as part of a further relaxation of social distancing measures. Roden Wong is a spokesman for the Bar Industry Alliance. It's supposed to keep shutting us down because the landlord will be like, oh, oh, you guys can open and then keep charging us like normal rent. But in fact, 
we cannot make any money out of this restriction. For business nature, we normally start at 11 p.m. So people start arriving the place at 11, and then it's quite difficult to change people's habit and convince them to come early and spend money in our place. Liberal Party leader Felix Chung has suggested the government issue bonds to fund its Lantau Tomorrow reclamation plan. The government has said fiscal reserves will be at $800 billion after handing out the latest round of coronavirus relief funds. The project is estimated at more than $600 billion. Mr Chung says the government clearly doesn't have enough money. The government just do not have sufficient money to support this plan anymore. So we would suggest the government to raise the funds from selling potential. So uh, to get some public money instead of having all the burdens from the government's pockets. You're listening to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. Local subsidiaries of the mainland genomics company that conducted Hong Kong's citywide COVID testing scheme have agreed to stop selling a specific type of gene sequencing technology to new clients here, as a UK rival takes it to court over allegations that it had illegally copied the tech. Jimmy Choi reports. Illumina Cambridge Limited is suing six Hong Kong and Shenzhen subsidiaries of the mainland firm BGI. It says the genomics giant had copied a patented type of gene sequencing technology for its own use. At a directions hearing at the High Court, the lawyer representing the six defendants, Winnie Tam, said the firm would stop selling these specific types of gene sequencing machines to new clients here until the court reaches a decision on the case. They will, however, continue to supply sequencing kits to its existing customers here, which include hospitals and universities, and total sequencing services will be maintained at specified levels. Ms Tam said the tech in question was not used in the universal COVID test scheme that wrapped up earlier this week. But the UK firm isn't satisfied with this. It's seeking injunctions to bar the defendants from making, using, stocking, supplying and selling all related products. It's also demanding damages for its alleged losses. The case has been adjourned to February the 24th next year. The Commerce and Economic Development Secretary Edward Yao says he has sent a letter to the US Trade Representative asking Washington to withdraw a new rule that Hong Kong-made products exported to the US be marked as being made in China. He says if local authorities aren't happy with the US response, the government may lodge a formal complaint with the World Trade Organization. The requirement is due to come into force in November. Mr Yao says authorities are compelled to act as a matter of principle. We would like to formally sort of raise our objection to the U.S. through the letter I pass on to the USTR through the Acting Council General in Hong Kong. I've also sort of conveyed a message through our respective offices, both in Washington and also Geneva, particularly the letter, where both Hong Kong and U.S. have our representative in WTO. And this is also a necessary process in, under the spirit and also practices of WTO consultation leading to dispute settlements. So I will await U.S. response and also sort of a determine what's next action that we are going to take. The Chief Secretary Matthew Zheng has defended the national security law imposed on Hong Kong, saying it's being, been effective in restoring stability. In a video message to the United Nations Human Rights Council, he called on the international community not to adopt a double standard. Wendy Wong reports. Matthew Chung told the council the law was enacted to address the increasing threat to national security in Hong Kong posed by escalating violence from rioters during last year's social unrest. 
He said the law was vital in bringing Hong Kong back on track and safeguarding China's sovereignty, security and development interests. He noted that advocating Hong Kong independence and colluding with external forces has subsided as an acts of violence. He said this showed the law had been effective. He pointed out that most other countries had national security laws. He described it as unthinkable that Hong Kong's own law should be a cause of concern. It's understood that more than 60 witnesses will be called to testify at an inquest into the death of a university student during protests at Chen Kuan last year. The proceedings will start on November the 16th and are expected to last five weeks. The University of Science and Technology student Chao Si Lok fell from a height at a car park last November as police were clashing with anti-government protesters in the area. The witness list includes paramedics, doctors and police officers. Here's Chief Police Inspector Moxie Wai. As the case has already entered the court proceedings, I cannot disclose too many details. But I would like to highlight that the police has located a lot of witnesses, including the police, ambulance staff, and also other witnesses, to disclose the whole details of the offence. And also we will locate a lot of CCTV footage, capturing some details of this instance. I would like to disclose it during the coroner proceedings. A man and a woman charged with attacking police officers outside Taiwai MTR station last September have been acquitted. Magistrate Jason Wan said the pair, a 32-year-old man and a 42-year-old woman, did not resist arrest or obstruct police, and the man was just defending himself. He added witness statements given by the three police officers were obviously inconsistent with video footage of the incident. Train services on the MTR's Guntong line were disrupted for about half an hour this afternoon after a signalling fault near Choihong Station. It prompted the rail firm to suspend services between Guntong and Kowluntong Station. The problem has now been fixed, but some passengers were none too happy about the delay. Well, I was stuck on the train for 20 minutes in between stops. Now we got here. I don't hear anything in English, first of all. I just hear Chinese. doesn't help me. And I'm going all the way to Taiwo, which is far away from here still. So I have no idea how to get there. Don't know what buses I could take, where to get them. I don't ride MTR to school, but since the MTR is not working and there's a lot of people waiting in the minibus station, it affects my schedule since I plan to have 30 minutes from home to school, but now I think I'll be late to school. A South Korean airline has resumed direct flights with Wuhan, the city where the coronavirus pandemic started. It's the first international carrier to do so, as the BBC's Stephen McDonnell reports. South Korea's budget carrier T-Way Air is the first international operator to resume flights into and out of Wuhan. The once-a-week round trip connecting Seoul with the city which had the world's first coronavirus cluster is being seen as highly symbolic. In January, the airline suspended its Wuhan flights as the coronavirus spread. However, the city of 11 million people, where more than 80% of China's deaths from the virus have occurred, has for months now not seen any new local transmissions. United Nations investigators have accused the Venezuelan government of committing systematic violations amounting to crimes against humanity in an attempt to suppress political opposition. The BBC's Imogen Folks reports. What is particularly chilling here is that it's really the kind of violence that amounts, the UN investigators say, to crimes against humanity, extrajudicial killings, enforced disappearance, very serious torture, including sexual violence, and that this has been coordinated right from the top 
of Nicolas Maduro's government. The UN investigators have uh, come up with 45 names of security service members who they say they believe are directly responsible. A congressional investigation in the United States has found that two fatal crashes of Boeing 737 MAX aircraft were partly due to the company's unwillingness to share technical details. The report by the House Transportation Committee is highly critical of what it calls a culture of concealment at Boeing. The BBC's Sasha Slichter has the details. The report by the House Transportation Committee describes the crashes as a horrific culmination of engineering flaws, mismanagement and a severe lack of federal oversight. The report, which condemns both Boeing and the Federal Aviation Administration for safety failures, concludes an 18-month investigation based on interviews with two dozen Boeing and agency employees. The committee chairman called it a tragedy that could have been prevented and promised legislation to make sure it never happened again. Now sport and first football. The Arsenal captain Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has committed his future to the London club by signing a three-year contract extension. The striker's current deal was due to expire at the end of the season and the Gunners risked losing him for free. More from the BBC's John Bennett. He's massive for the club on and off the pitch. On the pitch, truly world-class forward. I don't use that lightly as well. He's got an incredible goal-scoring record in the Premier League for Arsenal. 55 goals in 86 games. Scored two goals in their FA Cup final win last month. Uh, his first goal of the season on Saturday as well in their win over Fulham, linking up really well with the new signing, Willian. But off the pitch too, this doesn't really get talked about enough. He's not a leader in the, the mould of a John Terry, for example, who's going to shout and scream and organise teammates. But, but what he does, he's, he's a, he leads by example and he's, the young players really look up to him. He's very popular in the dressing room. I've interviewed him a few times. He's a very positive person. And, and I, I do think as well, it's a big vote of confidence in Mikel Arteta, Arsenal's best player, committing his future to the club. To basketball, the Denver Nuggets are into the Western Conference Finals against the LA Lakers after winning three straight games to turn around a 3-1 deficit in their playoff series with the LA Clippers. Their convincing 104-89 win in Game 7 makes this the second time the Nuggets have battled back from the brink in this year's playoffs. They also won three straight elimination games against Utah in the first round. In the Eastern Conference Finals, the Miami Heat lead 1-0 after their 117-114 overtime victory in Game 1. Goran Dragic led the Heat with 29 points, but clutch plays from Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo in the dying seconds secured the win. A reminder of our top stories tonight. A student is confirmed to be infected with COVID ahead of the planned resumption of in-person classes. The 10-year-old is one of two new COVID cases that are linked to an outbreak centred on a Tun Moon restaurant. And Ocean Park prepares to reopen on Friday, but bars aren't happy with the restrictions imposed. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Some bar operators are complaining that social distancing restrictions being required by the government will greatly reduce business when they reopen on Friday. A spokesman for the Bar Industry Alliance, Roden Wong, says having to close at midnight will really make things hard. He says he'll try opening his business a bit earlier, but he told Joanne Wong it might actually be better to just stay closed. This new post to keep shutting us down because 
the landlord will be like, uh, oh, you guys can open and then keep charging us like normal rent. But in fact, we cannot make any money out of this restriction. For business nature, we normally start at 11 p.m. So people start arriving the place at 11. And then it's quite difficult to change people's habits and convince them to come early and spend money in our place. So you'd rather stay close? Yeah, so that the landlord won't charge us, if that's possible. At least we are stopped by the government. How many of the members, uh, the bars under your alliance, uh, are telling you that they are not going to reopen on Friday? Actually, they haven't spoken out about their uh, decision yet, but most of them are quite mad about the decision. This time limit is quite ridiculous, and having us to close at 12 a.m. is like not letting us open it. How do you think the government should have done this um, in terms of the restrictions? I think they should keep us closed and when we can open, when they think we can open with all the restrictions and let us operate normally. That's very different from what you were advocating earlier because you wanted to reopen. Last week when we spoke to you, you wanted to reopen. You think that uh, even with yeah, restrictions yeah. there, you can still at least earn some money. The main restriction now is the time limit, right? We don't mind doing the, all the mask on thing and everything, but time limit is like quite ridiculous. And we totally didn't expect it. What are your plans? Are you planning to stay closed? Actually, we are trying to open at 6 p.m. and then we close at 12 a.m. just to follow the government restriction and we will try our best to convince our customer to come and then let's hope for the best. A warning from the government yesterday that Hong Kong's fiscal reserves will fall to their lowest level since the SARS outbreak in 2003 has sparked a fresh debate about the controversial Lantau Tomorrow project. Critics say the plan to create around 1,700 hectares of man-made islands east of Lantau would drain the SAR of its dwindling reserves. The scheme, a signature project for the chief executive Carrie Lan, is expected to cost more than $600 billion, while the reserves are projected to fall to just $800 billion by the end of the fiscal year. Liberal Party leader Felix Chung still backs the project, but he's suggesting that the government issue new bonds to fund it. He spoke to Candice Wong. This is a very difficult decision because why the government need to reclaim the land because there is a shortage of land supply. So where do we get the land in order to get sufficient of land for the building of houses? I mean, we can certainly do a research first. Of course, the government um, uh, reserve down from 1,100 billion, the government just do not have sufficient money to support this plan anymore. So we would suggest the government to raise the funds from selling Pipenger so uh, to get some public money instead of having all the burdens from the government's pockets. But some analysts worried that if um, the government issued bonds, that could raise credit issues for the Hong Kong government. Do you think that could be another problem then? That really depends on how much the government uh, have to issue the bonds or the venture. That, that's why we need to give some money to the government to do some research first, not by just saying that some support or somebody is not supporting. So the government is asking 
the financial committee to give them some money to do the research. I think it's worth to, to do a study on that. Regarding the relief fund that it costs $24 billion, are you disappointed that it is fewer than the last two rounds? We didn't expect that too much because last week I had a chance to meet the chief executive and financial secretary. They already declare that they won't uh, give out that much of money this time. So um, the, the, the actual amount that it's given out to the business sector is actually around 4.5 billion. So it's not much. Are the businesses happy about it? Well, certainly is not. Especially most of them are actually subsidizing the catering business. I, I think right now the most difficult uh, industry is the tourism industries because uh, no matter it's inbound or outbound, they just cannot do any business at all. I mean, they are the, the industry suffering the most. But the amount of money subsidizing the tourism industry is actually not too much. And also some has uh, insisted their calls for a direct subsidy to the unemployed people. And that hasn't been done in the latest plan. Do you think that should be done instead? Yes, I agree with that because, you know, the uh, ESS scheme is helping the employer to hold the employee. So not buying the employee, but some people already got fired. They're already unemployed. And they, it's very difficult to find, for them to get a job right now. So for, for them, I think, is the most urgent group of people that need the subsidies from the government. So I, I think the government should set up some, something like an employment fund to help this group of people. Legislators are due to debate a $500 million government funding request to bankroll a feasibility study for the project later this year. But the environmental group Greenpeace says it's, it's conducted a study which suggests that the project could completely deplete Hong Kong's fiscal reserves in under 11 years. A senior campaigner with the group, Kate Lin, told Candice Wong the only sensible option is to abandon the scheme entirely. I don't think they should um, go ahead. I think they should disapprove or vote against this uh, funding request because actually this um, funding request is to a feasibility study but it's uh, looking into the engineering feasibilities and also the planning on the island which it, which means they actually accept these reclamation projects to go ahead. So this is actually against the majority of the views in the Hong Kong society. And in terms of the cost of this Lantau tomorrow reclamation plan, the government had estimated um, around $600 billion but is not spent in one go or in one year. Um, is that still worrying to you? We actually consider this situation um, in our calculation in the analysis report. We know that the government might sweat the overall cost into 10 years. So we calculate based on these situations and find that the, even under the most optimum situation, the Hong Kong fiscal research will be like decreed within 11 years. So this is actually what, what we have considered. But the financial secretary, Paul Chan, says they may still go ahead with projects that are in line with the long-term benefits of the society, such as housing and infrastructure that we need. So what do you make of his comments? Uh, actually, um, we try to address this problem in our report, which is the housing or land demand. And we find that uh, Hong Kong now is facing a short-term huge demand in housing. So we actually uh, suggest the government should develop on the barnfield side in the new territory, which the cost to develop on the barnfield side and the time need for the development is short 
is shorter than that spent on the reclamation project, which is about 10 to 15 years for reclamation project. Parliament in Japan has appointed Yoshihide Suga as the new Prime Minister. The former Cabinet Secretary, who takes over from the long-serving Shinzo Abe, faces an economic slump, the ongoing pandemic and increasing rivalry with China. Anna-Marie Evans asked our Tokyo correspondent, Julian Ryle, what his expectations are of Japan's new leader. I think the expectations of everybody is more of the same. Um, he's very much uh, Mr Abe's a shadow uh, when Mr Abe was Prime Minister. And I think he said from the very outset, he's made it very clear that uh, he agreed with Mr Abe's policies, whether they be economic, international, um, you know, all the things that have been mattered so much to Mr Abe. And now he plans to continue them. And I think, obviously, the three main priorities for the government right now are dealing with the coronavirus, um, getting the economy back on track, and the one-off is the Olympic Games. They're very very keen to make sure that that can go ahead next year. Obviously, that's uh, very much dependent on the first two. So he's going to be focusing on the economy and dealing with the coronavirus. Now, Mr. Suga has been Mr. Abe's right-hand man, his chief cabinet secretary, but he is coming in to head the country at quite a difficult time. Absolutely. Arguably the most difficult time in the, in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, obviously, there was the, the, the uh, major disaster in the northeast back in 2011. Uh, but that was one event. It happened, and it was the clear-up afterwards. Now we have an entire economic crisis to deal with on top of the, uh, the health crisis. And, of course, it's not just Japan. It's the world around us. Uh, yes, he has a great deal to achieve with perhaps fewer tools at his disposal um, than uh, the prime ministers would have hoped to have. Um, it's going to be a long uh, and, and tough road and he has said at the outset that he recognises that's the, the task that faces him. What kind of character is he? I mean, in terms of leading the country, when I'm looking at newspaper articles about him, it's sort of saying that, well, he's been a good right-hand man to Shinzo Abe, but he hasn't really been tested at the forefront. I, I think that's it. It is, it is something of an unknown quality. Um, he has um, done his job very well as a, a chief cabinet secretary, but he has been also effectively following the orders of, of the prime minister and the cabinet, so he hasn't been making those decisions as far as we know. Now he has a, a, a very different role and a different, different set of responsibilities to deliver. Um, he's understood to be fairly dour in, in the tradition of Japanese politicians. Um, uh, he has less uh, charisma, perhaps, than his predecessor. And I think um, there is concern in certain quarters here that Japan might be edging back uh, to the situation where we have a new prime minister every 12 months or every 18 months. This is a man who doesn't have the support of factions. He doesn't belong to a faction within the LDP, which is traditionally the support base that prime ministers t uh, get their support from. Um, so he is essentially a little bit weak because he relies on the goodwill of factions. And if he ticks one of them off, then he could very quickly find himself without the support that he needs to remain in place. Um, I have a feeling uh, that uh, he will go to the country next month. There's already talk about a, a snap election next month to legitimise his prime ministership. But again, there is the hint in the background that he might not last all that long. In terms of the LDP, I mean, obviously Shinzo Abe was uh, a long-standing prime minister, albeit unpopular uh, towards the end of his uh, tenure. But uh, in terms of the LDP itself, has it got survivor survivability? 
It, it has, but that's more a function of the fact that the opposition is so very, very hopeless. Um, they're weak, they're divided, they're unsure on their messaging, and they don't seem to be able to land a punch on the LDP, even when we have scandals, even when we have uh, the, the, you know, Mr. Mr. Abbey doing poorly in the polls. You know, he would still win the election because the opposition is so fractured. Um, and I think that you know, perhaps that is the one thing in Mr. Suga's favour. Uh, the LDP will retain power if, it win, if, it, if he calls an election in the next few weeks. Um, and it probably will do in the, in, the, in the one after that as well, barring a complete co collapse of the party. Um, he will go before the party is out of power. Where does Mr Sugar stand on foreign policy? An unknown quantity, again. Um, when he was uh, Chief Cabinet Secretary, he was very much focused on domestic issues. He, uh, he hasn't been out of the country in several years, on an official, uh, in an official capacity. Um, and he has already said that he realises that uh, foreign policy is perhaps his area of weakness and that he will be leaning on Mr Abe uh, quite heavily in the weeks and months ahead. Um, Mr Abe, as we all know, is a, was a very much for travelling around the region, meeting other leaders. Um, and uh, putting himself about, and I think he got uh, quite a lot of respect for that. Um, Mr. Suga isn't known for being out there, and uh, what his policies are on, on China or on, on Southeast Asia are unknown in as much as he hasn't stated them, but again, it's probably going to be more of the same of Mr. Mr. Abe's policies. What do we know about him, and what's his background? He's from a very rural part of North Japan. Um, he's a very uh, ordinary gentleman. Yeah, his, his mother was a teacher. Um, he grew up in a small town um, and uh, wasn't really not from a not from a, a traditional uh, political dynasty. He uh, he worked his way through university. He was um, he worked in a factory at university before sort of slowly going into politics and working his way up from the very very bottom. Um, and I think that that's one thing he has used to his advantage. Explaining and putting that across, that he's not a blue blood in the traditional uh, Japanese political sense, but he has worked his way up, and therefore he understands how the party works. But more importantly, he understands how the people feel, and he can communicate with them, and he has that rapport. That might help him with the, with the electorate, but of course it will always come down to how he's doing in terms of the economy. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. The government is conducting a public consultation on the 2020 policy address. Please share your views on different policy areas. We are willing to listen and engage. For details, please visit the website www.policyaddress.gov.hk. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. 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 All the way until 1am with Ray Codero.
That was a famous Schubert serenade by Liberace at the piano. I can't stop loving I've made up my mind To live in Useless to say, so I'll just live my life in dreams of yesterday. Those happy hours. 